Well, it's great to be back uh, with you this morning and to share God's Word with you. Uh, Wednesday morning, I will get on the train in Elizabethtown and and travel to uh, the airport in Newark, and I'll fly to Mumbai, and uh, then from there, I'll spend uh, a month in India. Uh, What I do primarily is I work with pastors, and I foster the unity of the body of Christ in the geographic region. So I'll be in the city of Pune, uh, which is one of my locations. I've been there probably, this will be my 11th time in this city. Uh, And we'll go off from the city with a group of pastors. We'll pray together, seek God together. We'll uh, give opportunity for pastors to confess their sins to one another, their struggles with one another, because it's really in our humility. It's really in the place of our brokenness that we find our, our common unity. You know, we think that if I, if I share with you all of my good things, that that will actually bring about unity, but that's not true. What really brings about unity is me telling you I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I struggle. And you go, oh, me too. Because that's really our commonness, is we're, we're strugglers, common strugglers. And then that place God meets us, and God says we're brothers and we're sisters. We all find our commonality in, in the love of God for us and our forgiveness. And, and one of the things that we do after that confession is we quite often take communion, and the whole room changes that night, the countenance on the faces of the pastors changes. There are smiles on faces like there wasn't when we started our gathering, but because of their ability to be real, and that's really what small groups, let me give a little plug for small groups as well. That's what small groups are about. You know, sometimes we come to small groups and we we come with our chairs really turned away from each other, though we're sitting in a circle. But what we really need to do is we really need to turn towards each other and say, this is my struggle. This is what I'm wrestling with. This is my pain. Because in there we can truly meet one another. And God can truly meet us. And so then the question is, how can we go back into the city and, and serve the city together as pastors? How can the church work as one? I, I have become a, an advocate for John 17 where Jesus prays that the church would be one, that we would be one, that so that the world would believe that the Father sent the Son. We don't need better evangelistic tools. We need to be one. We need to love one another. And so that's really what I do in India. I'll be in in Pune. I'll be in uh, central India. I'll be in the northeast all the way around by Bangladesh. I'll be down in the south. I'll be in several different places. And one of the things that I was thinking about, and I'm glad John asked me to share just a couple moments about this, is, is... If you would pray for me, I'd greatly appreciate it. Because over the years, I've gone as a pastor of a congregation. I had a congregation praying for me as I've gone. And and this year, I don't go as a pastor of a congregation. I I have a team of people that are praying for me, but I don't have a congregation praying for me. So if you'd be willing to pray for me, I I would really appreciate it. I, I really want to go as an ambassador of a congregation, not merely some independent going out there by myself, uh, individual, because that's not what, what I'm about. I'm about being a part of the body of Christ, and so I would greatly appreciate uh, your prayers. I'm glad to be able to, to step in and to serve John and to serve you and to serve the Lord this morning by, by bringing God's Word. 
And this morning I'm going to talk out of John chapter 15. And it was interesting. I don't know if, uh, if John, Johnny got the, the, the message that I was going to be preaching before uh, he wrote, got the music together or not. But, but the first two songs were about joy this morning. And that's where I'm going to end this morning. Is I'm going to end where Jesus says, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. Jesus desires for you and me to be a people who experience joy in our lives. But there's a struggle for us as we live our lives is to experiencing that joy because sometimes or so often we attach our joy to our circumstances. That if, if the circumstances are correct, then I can have joy. But if the circumstances are difficult, if the circumstances are painful, if the circumstances are one of suffering, then our joy seems to be robbed from us. But Jesus doesn't say that it's a matter of our circumstances that enables us and empowers us to have joy. And so we'll get there at the end of the message this morning. Now I'm going to ask you to do something different then you might quite often be asked to do, is that when I open the Scripture and read it, we often say, now take your Bibles and open the Scriptures, and it's going to be up on the screen or however we do it, you know. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I want you to experience the Word as opposed to looking at each word. I want you to hear God speak to you this morning as I read the Word and then to have Him speak to you as I open up what I believe he's saying to us. So just shut your eyes. This is how the early church would have heard it, actually. They didn't have a Bible. They would be listening. And Jesus is speaking. And he says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, 
so that, you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God desires for our joy to be made full. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we first acknowledge that you are present with us that you are not up there, out there somewhere, but you are right here. You're fully present. And Lord, we want to enter into the intimacy of your presence with us as we're gathered as your people. And Lord, I come and I ask you, to help me to bring forth your word to these your people. For Lord, as I am a sinful man, and God, it's only by your grace that in your forgiveness that I can open up this word and that you can speak through me and these people can hear you. Lord, I pray that they hear You. And I pray, O God, that as we hear You, that we would repent and we would turn afresh to You and embrace You in all the fullness of who You are. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus begins here with the words, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. You could probably preach a whole sermon on that one verse. I am. That's a declarative statement. It's a word that that Jesus speaks in relation, tying him back to the God who met Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked, if the people ask, who should I say sent me to them? God answered, I am who I am. And Jesus is pointing out here in a very bold statement that I am that one who was in the bush that spoke to Moses. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am the true vine. I am the real vine, the authentic vine. That says that there can be false vines. That there can be vines that we can attach our lives to that, that will not bear fruit, that will not bear the kind of life that God has intended for us to experience and to know as we work and walk with Him. It's a call to attach ourselves to the true vine, to the One who gives life. It's interesting that here He says that I am the true vine. And To attach ourselves to Him is life. You know, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees in the center of the garden. Now, we only usually talk about one tree. Which tree is that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that the one we always talk about? What was the other tree? The tree of life. So Adam and Eve were were alive, but there was also a tree of life that they could partake of in that garden. 
And who is that tree of life? He was Jesus Christ, I believe, right there in the garden. That From the very beginning, Jesus isn't the second option or the option as a result of the fall, but Jesus was the option right there in the garden that in order for us to have authentic life, it was there in the garden for us to partake of. But Adam and Eve said, no, we'll partake of the knowledge of good and evil because then we'll know and we'll be like God. And yet he was invited to partake of God himself in Jesus Christ in the garden. You see the tree throughout the scriptures. There's all this symbolism. When Moses takes the rod, at, what's it made of? It's made of wood. What does it do? It opens a pathway to life. When, Moses, or when Noah gets into what kind of a boat? It was a boat made of wood, the symbol of life. When their water was spoiled and there was the, the symbol of life as the, the branch was laid into that symbol. And all those are symbolic of Christ and the cross who gives us life. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, Israel was illustrated as the vine. And Jesus says, yes, Israel was a vine, was a representation of who I am, the true vine, the authentic vine, the real vine. I am the true vine. And he says, and my father is the vine dresser. And there's a relationship between the vine and the vine dresser. Jesus needs the vine dresser in order for the Father to fulfill His plan. He needs the vine. And so He cultivates. So there's a, there's a synergistic relationship between the vine and the vine dresser. They're better together. They present more together than they do as they bring their individual parts to one another. And so they are together, working with one another. And he says, and he's my father. Now that's a term that, that wasn't used in the Old Testament to describe God and the relationship. And Jesus says, my father, my father is the vine dresser. How do we often see God? How do you often see God? Oftentimes we see God first and foremost. Most people see him as what? Judge. Judge. It's a judicial relationship. Jesus transforms all of that for us. He says that if you want to know the Old Testament, if you want to know, understand God, look at me and I call God Father. And He says to us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, that He invites us into calling God our Father, to being in relationship with Him as Father. That's God's design from the very beginning. That you know God as Father. Not a judicial relationship, but a familial relationship. God's heart towards you is as a Father. Now, does a Father judge? Yes, He judges. But His judgment is under the relationship as Father to children. And that's our relationship with God, His Father. It's different than a judge. If I was to sit as a judge, I would judge differently than as a father. 
because I have an intimate relationship with my sons and my daughter. So there's this relationship between the father and the son. There's a mutuality of the relationship between the father and Jesus. And then he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now we read the first part of that verse and we struggle with it. I struggle with it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. In me, he takes away. We get into, oh, salvation. Can you lose your salvation? If I don't bear fruit, what is fruit? What do I have to do to, to keep my salvation? Those are the questions that start to wrangle up, again, up inside of us. And, it, and it's a good question to ask It's it, that we wrestle with this. Now, there are two ways of looking at this. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I was reading um, Bruce Wilkerson's little book, The True Vine. He's more famous for his book, Jabez Prayer, or The Prayer of Jabez. But in his book, The True Vine, he says this word, he takes away, can also be translated, he lifts up. And what he says in the book is he says that, that the vines in the days of Israel... We're on the ground. Now, we have stakes today. We put the, our, our grapevines up on stakes, and we, we have wires that run across them, and we, we wrap the vines around the, the stakes. But in the days of Israel, in the days when Jesus was writing here, that what they did is that when they had, were growing their grapes, they would take stones and they would put them under the vines. And when those stones got down into the water, when it was muddy, they would take the, stone, the, the stones and place them under the vines so they would be clean and they would be outside of that, that dirty water that would destroy them. And what he's saying, it's the act of love here of a father. He says it's an act of love of lifting those vines up so that they can grow and become what he wants them to become. He says when you're, when you're not bearing fruit, the father doesn't hack you off, but the father lifts you up so that you can grow and produce the fruit that you want to become. I like that. It's a much easier understanding. But I think we also need to say, well, what does it mean if he takes us away? He says the father's care is there. It's like the father who loves his son and cares and loves and works with him and works with him. And the son says, I don't want it. Though you're in me, you don't want it. The father says to the prodigal son, then go. Then go. If you want to go, go. I'll let you go. Because that's what love does. Love lets you go. If you don't want to walk in the family, then I'm going to let you go. It's your choice. I love you. My heart towards you has not changed. But you can go. And so we can live with the tension of these words themselves. Now, we have to ask the question when he says, well, every tree that does, every tree that does not bear fruit, he, he takes away, and those that bear fruit, he prunes. What is fruit? What does it mean to, to bear fruit? So often we hear that it's to, or we used to hear anyway when I was a kid, that you had, it was about evangelism, that to bear fruit was about winning souls, that, it, that if I'm going to be a good follower of Jesus Christ, I had to be winning souls, then I'm looking, gosh, God, I don't qualify. I lived in a city where 2% of the people attended church on a Sunday morning. 
It was hard to lead people to Jesus Christ. I probably led a handful of people in over many, many years to Jesus Christ. I'm not very fruit-bearing according to this passage if I read it that way. Then I was sitting with a friend of mine very early on in my seminary days. And he began to show me what fruit was. You see, you've got to go back to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus speaks these words in the upper room. And he, and he says, this is the new command that I give to you, that you love one another. Then after he gets done saying these words, he gets interrupted. One of the disciples asks a question. He doesn't go on and explain it. He just gets asked a question after that. Simon Peter's the first one to interrupt. That was normal. Peter, was, that was kind of his role, was to interrupt Jesus, to, to get in the way of what Jesus might really be trying to accomplish. And after... Peter interrupts Jesus. Then, then Thomas asks a question in verse 14. And then Philip asks a question in verse 14. And so there's this dialogue that goes on. This happens in sermons all the time. We start chasing rabbits and, or we're in a conversation. Somebody asks a question and all of a sudden we're off the trail of what we want to get to. And so that's what's happening here is people are asking questions. Peter, Thomas, uh, Philip are asking questions and Jesus is answering those questions. And Judas, who's not Iscariot, down there later in verse chapter 14, ask a question. And so it's not until we get back to John chapter 15 when Jesus again is, if we can use this word, in control of the conversation that he gets back to what he wants to talk about. Because remember, it was, if you are my disciples, you will love one another. Well, if we go down further in Verse 8 of chapter 15, he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove to be a disciple? By bearing fruit. How did you prove to be a disciple in John chapter 13? By loving one another. And so Jesus finally gets back to the subject that he wants to get back to, is that what we are to bear fruit, what we are to do with our lives, is we are to love one another. Doesn't that relate to what Jesus said the great commandment is? That the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that this is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. And I believe it's love and then joy, peace, patience, all those other eight are really examples of love, expressions of love. That there's only one fruit, authentic fruit. And then in Matthew's Gospel, when the people come to John to be baptized. He says, go and bear much fruit. Go and bear fruit of your baptism. What was it? It was the way you treated other people. And so throughout the Scripture, fruit is an expression of love. And so Jesus is saying to us, 
that we are to bear love in our lives. And those that are bearing love, those that are expressing love, he prunes. Why does he prune? So that we'll love more. And pruning isn't a fun example. Now, when I was a young man, a young pastor, I became a pastor of a church when I was 25 years old. Way too young today, I'll tell you, because there's so, it's so different than it was back then. But I thought I loved people, or I pretended I loved people, but I, I, to be honest, I didn't. And let me tell you, I still don't love like I should. I still don't love like I should. Love's hard. Loving my wife is hard, not because of her, but because of me. Loving my children is hard, not because of them, but because of me. Loving my grandchildren is hard, not because of them. Well, sometimes because of them. (laughs) But more because of me. Because of what's going on in my life. What's going on in the deep recesses of my soul. And so God keeps pruning. It's painful. You know, as, as a young man, it was when I was sitting in counseling sessions with, with younger Christians, broken Christians, Christians that didn't have the privilege of going up in a Christian home like I did and hearing their stories. The pain that they had walked through, the suffering, that I began to have a greater heart of love. And the Lord was gracious, and as he began to to show this to me, he also began to reveal to me not the outward shell of who I was, because I was pretty good outwardly, but he began to open up the inward recesses of my heart. And I began to see the ugliness of my own heart, the selfishness, the pride, the lust, And I began to see that God, I needed God's grace and God's mercy as much as anybody else. Didn't really understand it. But what it gave me is a heart that grew in love for people. You know, as I see people struggling with sin, I can embrace them. Why? Because I know my own struggle with sin. My own struggle with temptation. I was sitting with a, uh, one of my associate pastors one day, and you know I think I shared this last time here that my struggle is is wanting the approval of people. And he says, "Well, why don't you just stop it?" I would if I could. I wanted to turn to him. I wanted to, this is by wanting you know my wanting to be nice and, and having people receive me. I didn't say it to him, but what I should have said to him: well, Why don't you stop doing and whatever he was doing? All of us would stop doing it if we could. But we're bound by the passions of our life and by the temptation that Satan brings upon us. And so God allows us to see those things and they're hurtful and they're painful, but what do they do? They enable us to love people. The greater heart of compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. 
Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge another person? Then Jesus says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That again relates back to, to John chapter 13 when Jesus is in the upper room and he, and he shares the, the, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, with the, with the disciples in that upper room and he speaks a word from them. He says, you are clean, not all of you. Who wasn't clean? Simon wasn't clean. He says, but because of the word that I've spoken to you, you are clean. And he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says here, here's the way to bear fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. For me, that's, that's not a, a metaphor. That's not a picture. That's a living reality. That my life abides in Christ and Christ abides in me. That's the reality. I can't understand it. I can't explain it. It's by faith that I say I am living in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is living in me. How can that be? How can I be in Him and Him be in me? How can, you know, because isn't it that one is inside the other it can't, and you can't have the other one inside the other one? If the one is inside the other one, there's only one who can be inside? I mean, if we have to explain it, that's what we get to. It's paradoxical. I don't need to explain it. I need to live into it. I live to, need to live into it by faith that Christ lives in me and I live in Him, that my life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Can I explain that? No. That I am already seated in heavenly places. Oh, I'm standing up here in, in the auditorium this morning. How can it be that I am already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? How can that be? It's a mystery. It's paradoxical. Why is it so paradoxical? Because Jesus Christ Himself is paradoxical. He is God. He is man. How can He be God and how can He be man? I don't know. It's paradoxical, but it's both are true. He is man. He is God. He is one. Oh, sounds a little bit like the Trinity. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have the Holy Spirit. They're three, but they're one. How can that be? It's paradoxical. And if Jesus Christ is in all, then we should expect paradox everywhere we look in life. You know, these arguments we have over theology, free will, predestination, lose your salvation, keep your salvation, um, faith, works, all, all these things, they're all in the Scriptures. We like to divide them out. We like to choose one because then we can explain it. 
Our faith is not about explanation. It's about faith. It's about living into the realities. And so we see paradox in these things. Why? Because Jesus himself is paradox. Have you seen the movie The Good Lie? No, haven't seen that one? You ought to see that one. It's on HBO, I think, right now, if you get that on your TV. It's, it's about a, some Christian uh, Africans who come to the United States, and the one brother ends up going back to Africa, giving his passport to his brother, and lets his brother come to the United States. And that's the good, that's the good lie. And we would say, well, how can a lie be good? paradoxical God is paradox and so I abide in him and he abides in me and through a relationship I can bear fruit and unless you abide in the vine You can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can't love. You can't bear fruit. You can't love without abiding in Jesus Christ. You can't. Why? You can can try. You can do good things. But it's always going to be motivated by a selfish desire as well. It's going to be, it's going to be motivated by, by, by what you can get as well. Again, I was sitting with uh, the young pastor who took over as pastor of the church that I, I pastored for years. And, and we were sitting one day and he said to me, he said, Bill, have you ever done anything with a pure motive? I didn't take long. No. No, I've never done anything in my life with a pure motive. It's always been mixed. That's the brokenness of my my humanity that still remains in me. That God is working on, that God is removing, that God is, that I'm dying to so that I can love authentically. So that I don't have to look at what am I going to get out of it, but I can look fully at what someone else is going to get out of it. So that I have that mind of Christ living and dwelling in me. Oh, what to be that kind of person. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away, verse 6, as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. There's not love because there's no relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not like the Father says, oh boy, I get to go get him and burn him now. But the Father cannot work with them. The Father can't invite them, embrace them into the relationship of love because they've rejected love. They've rejected His love. They've rejected the love of others. And so the relationship is broken. It is lost. 
But he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Woohoo! We can ask anything we want and we're going to get it. No. If you abide in me, now what's going to happen if you abide in Christ is you're going to what? Have love. And so what's your heart always going to be focused on? It's always going to be focused on others, not yourself. So if I'm abiding in Christ, my focus is always on others, thinking of others more highly than myself. And then when I pray, who am I going to be praying? I'm going to be praying their best. And because I'm going to be listening to God and embracing and expressing His words, very words, back to Him of what His will is. But it begins with abiding in Christ. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. How is God glorified? He's glorified by you bearing much fruit, by you loving. By you loving, loving one another. That's what happens in the small group. That's what happens in the workplace. That's what happens in your neighborhood. Everywhere you go, you just being that loving person. What happened when, when the early Christians began to love one another and care for one another? The world said what? Oh, how they love one another. Is the world saying that about the church today? Are your neighbors saying that about you? Are the people in your workplace saying that about you? Are you running to the workplace and saying, let me tell you how my church has loved me this week? Are you going to your neighbor and saying, let me tell you how my church loved me this week? No, we go to our people and say, you know what, you need to know Jesus Christ. No, what we need to be telling is how my church family is loving me. Wow, oh, how they love one another. And this is how they'll know that we are his disciples if we love one another. He doesn't say they'll know we're his disciples by what we preach at them. He says they'll know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. How we treat one another. That the church ought to be such a different community than the community out there that does not know Christ. That the world is in awe of the church. That those that have lived in broken families, those that have suffered the pain of fathers who have left homes, that those that have suffered the pain of seeing their families ripped apart by divorce, look into the church and say, there's real love. There's something authentic. There's something that I want to be a part of. And it has to flow through you and it has to flow through me. It begins with us as persons. Persons abiding in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation for this love. Is us abiding, being constantly aware of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. But I'm so easily distracted. I can turn on the TV and I can watch a football game for hours and not think about Christ. I can go out and I can play golf and I can enjoy that 
and not think about Christ. I become consumed in my own head with my own desires and passions that I not think about Christ. And I fail to abide constantly with the presence of Jesus Christ in my life. And that's the goal of my life, is to abide in Jesus Christ at all times because that is salvation. A relationship in union with Jesus Christ constantly living in His wonderful presence and abiding in Him. I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. How often I'm running away from His arms in my life because I'm distracted by the things of the world rather than bringing Him into every sphere, every relationship of my life. Constantly being aware of His presence. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. What is the relationship between the love of the Father and the Son? It's perfect. The Father's constantly pouring out for the Son, and the Son is constantly pouring out for the Father. They're living in this mutual love feast with one another. That's who our God is. That's why there's a Trinity and not a Unitarian God, because He's a God of relationship. He's living in this beautiful union with Himself, and He says, Oh, I want to create man. I want to create man because I want Him to enter into this relationship, this union of love that I am experiencing within myself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to come in and I want you to come in through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit into the Trinity. Whoa! Isn't that what Jesus prays in John chapter 17? That we would be one with Him? Not that we get to be part of the Trinity, not that we become God ourselves, but in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The fullness of God dwells within us, Paul says. That we take on the divine nature, Peter says. Not in ourselves, but in Christ, by the Holy Spirit. So he invites us to take on this love. And if you want to know the love of Jesus Christ, just look at the cross. Henry Blackaby said in his book, Experiencing God, just look at the cross. Just keep your eye on the cross. When you wonder about God's love, and I wonder every day, I've got to keep looking at the cross and abiding in Him. And He says, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. How many of you like commandments? You go, Yeah, commandments, baby, I love them. <clears throat> we reject them. Again, because we look at it from a judicial perspective rather than a relational perspective. I was, I was thinking one day about this. I, I was going through a list of... Uh, uh, some, sometimes in prayer I use a list. And I, and I was going through the alphabet to declare who God was. You know, A, God, you're awesome. I ad uh, you're, you're adoring. You know, all these things. And B, C. I got to D and I'm thinking D, D, D. God, you're demanding. And I, and I went through that for a while. And then I go, I think the Holy Spirit said, Whoa! Whoa! Where does it say I'm demanding? Well, the command. No, 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 no. So I went back and I looked at the word command. What is the first part of the word command? And this is true in the Greek and in the Hebrew as well. 
come. Come. What is come? It's invitation. Come is invitation. God isn't demanding of us. He's inviting us to join Him in His mandate in the world of expressing love everywhere we go. Isn't that beautiful? Man, it changed my whole thinking. It changed my, my whole grasp on who God is. You know, because I looked at these words in the, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and I was thinking, I've got to do these things. No, God is saying, come and join me in my mandate by doing these things. Come because I love you. I'm giving you these things because I love you, not because I demand something of you, but I'm inviting you into this awesome relationship with me. It's about relationship. Command, commandments and obedience are relational, not judicial. Obedience is relational. It's expression of love. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I see they're checking the clock. I must be overtime. Am I overtime? Okay. I'm going to wrap it up here real quick because we're getting to joy. Here we go. Um, it's relational. It's relational. Obedience is relational. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you abide in me, you will keep my commandments. It's relational. We need to understand that our God is first and foremost a relational God of love who is inviting us into this glorious command with Him. Then he, this relationship with Him and the way that we express our love is through obedience. Then it says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. How is our joy made, be made full? By keeping commandments through obedience, through living into the expression of this union with God is the experience of joy. It's through relationship that obedience is the opportunity to give expression of the union of my life with God's life. It's the physical expression, the physical application of the union that is present in my life. Are you following me there? You get it? So when you're saying, when you're obeying God, you're saying to God, I love you. Oh, if we could, parents could grasp this and get it with our children, that the reason that I'm in, inviting you into obedience with me is because it's an opportunity for you to express love. And as the one giving the command, my command is in a command of love. It is for your good. Now, all of us parents know that. Our children don't understand it. They think our commands are because we like to control. And we push that off to God, too, that he just likes to control. No. Our commands as parents and the commands of God are all loving and relational. And when we obey, there is authentic joy. And I'm not sure I even know how to interpret, explain joy. I, 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 you know, it, it just is. It just is. It's just a sense of 
wholeness, a sense of completeness, a sense of peace. I mean, I have to use all the other words to describe joy. It's a sense of settledness. It's not that I'm happy. Oh, I'm ha- there is a sense of happiness to it. But it's not happiness. It's a sense of fullness. It's that well that rises up in my soul, as that old song says, that joy that, that springs up in my, my soul. I can't explain it. It just is. And God wants you to experience that. But it begins with abiding in Him. And abiding in Him leads to obedience of His commands. And the obedience is the fruit of it. The fruit of it is joy. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank You that, that there is joy for us. And God, even though we can't put our finger on what it is, we know it when we have it. And we thank you, Father, that circumstances don't have to determine our joy. But, Lord, our obedience is what does. Lord, I pray that that you would seal in the hearts of each person here what you want them to take home today. God, you would Refresh in them what you want to refresh. In Jesus' name, amen.